What is a hero? Are they born? Is it in their DNA? Or are heroes created, refined in the fires of trial and adversity? Maybe being a hero is a choice, a choice to be bold, to stand up for what is right, a choice not to wait, but to seek out opportunities to take up the torch of faith and hold it high, no matter the cost. Good morning, church at Rolling Hills. I'm so glad to be with you all this morning. Thank you guys for having me. I'm so thankful to be here just under Jeff's leadership and to have the opportunity to pick up where we've left off on the book of Esther. And if you guys missed Jeff's sermons either last week or the week before, I would really encourage you to go back because this is definitely a series through a book. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and turn to Esther. It'll be up on the screen or if you've got it on your phone or an actual uh, brick and mortar Bible, that's great too. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. We're going to be uh, looking at chapters five and six this morning. Now, as you're getting to Esther five and six, I want to just give us a tiny bit of a recap about where we picked up or where we left off from last week, I should say. So you remember that King Xerxes is the king over Persia. And he has his chief of staff, this man named Haman. Haman is an evil man. He wants to destroy the Jews. In fact, he has actually put out a, a decree to destroy all of the Jews in all of the provinces in the 12th month. Now, there is a Jewish man who is in the king's courts named Mordecai. Mordecai catches wind of Haman's plan. And he mourns and he fasts and he's in, he's in sackcloth and ashes, just devastated by this. He happens to have, Mordecai happens to have an adopted daughter who he raised, an, a Jewish woman who is now married to the king, Queen Esther. And so Mordecai is in the king's courts, and this is where we were last week, and he sends a message to Esther letting her know about this awful plan of Haman's to destroy the Jews. And so he sends a messenger, and that, that message gets to Esther, and he says, essentially, Esther, here's, here's the deal. Haman, your husband, the king's chief of staff, wants to destroy all the Jews. And, and here's the situation. You need to personally make a plea to the king on behalf of your people, the Jewish people. So she gets this message. She's absolutely devastated by the news. She sends a message back to Mordecai. And that messenger goes back to Mordecai and Mordecai receives it and Esther essentially says, here's the problem. I would be happy to go to the king and make a plea, but I can only go to the king if he summons me. And he has not summoned me in 30 days. And if I were to go to the king without having been first summoned, actually, if anybody goes to the king without having first been summoned, the punishment for that is the death penalty. It's execution. Unless there is this small chance that he extends the golden scepter to me, but I don't know if that's going to happen unless I already put my life on the line. That's my paraphrase. And so then Mordecai gives another message. Message goes back to Esther. And he goes, okay, I understand what you're saying. However, don't think that you alone will survive just simply because you are married to the king. In fact, Esther, I'm going to go so far as to say that if you don't step up and help deliver the Jewish people, deliverance will come another way. 
God will raise up someone else to deliver the people. And so then he says to her, could it be, could it be that you have come into royal position for such a time as this, those famous words? And so then she sends a message back and it goes back to Mordecai. And she goes, okay, all right, Mordecai, here's the situation. You and your people fast. Now it doesn't say pray, but it's absolutely implied, very assumed that they were praying as they were fasting. And she says, you and your people, every Jew you can find, you get together and over the next three days, you pray and you fast. My people and I will pray and we will fast. And then I will go to the king. And then she says the famous words, if I perish, I perish. And I really wanted that to be my chapter last week. Uh, I was really hoping that Jeff could go to Peru like a different weekend so I could have had that. We could have like, oh, that, I love, well, that's so exciting. That's such like the tweetable quote, if I perish, I perish. And then I'm looking at five and six, but then I got really excited about chapter five and six because I realized that sometimes it can be easy to make those amazing statements, but then it is so much harder to actually live those statements out. And five and six is all about Esther living the statement out. If I perish, I perish. I remember uh, I had my niece and my nephew and I was walking down the street in Nashville and I had them both in strollers. Will was about four at the time and Harper three. And there was a cyclist headed our way and he was a very serious looking cyclist. And I can always tell the serious ones because they have the pointy helmets and they have shoes that click into the pedals. And he was headed my way and he hit the curb the wrong way and he fell off of his bicycle. And without skipping a beat, my nephew said, and that's why I don't wanna take my training wheels off. <laughs> it's like, he wasn't concerned about this guy, he wasn't worried about him. He's just like, that's exactly why I'm never taking my training wheels off. Esther is about to take the training wheels off. She's been raised in Mordecai's home. She knows about the God of the Jews. She worships the God of the Jews. He has taught her in the ways of the one true God. But now the training wheels are coming off and she alone is going to have to carry out this task, this mission that God has given her to do. Would you look at chapter five and can we read the first eight verses together this morning as we pick up at this very important time in the story. On the third day, Esther dressed in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor in his eyes. The king extended the gold scepter in his hand toward Esther and she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. What is it, Queen Esther, the king asked her. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom will be given to you. If it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for them. The king said, hurry and get Haman so we can do as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. While drinking the wine, the king asked Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you and whatever you want, even to half the kingdom will be done. Esther answered, this is my petition and my request. If I have found favor in the eyes of the king and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet. I will prepare for them tomorrow. I will do what the king has asked. On the third day, 
is how this chapter starts out. And this is very, very important because the third day, this is the end of the fast. This is the end of the prayer. This is the end of all the Jews coming together to petition on behalf of Esther and this request that she's going to make. Now, we don't know what those prayers consisted of, but as I was thinking this story through, and, at, and, and because we know that she had not been summoned by the king in 30 days, I had to believe, I have to believe that they were pleading on behalf of Esther and that one of their prayers was, Lord, please prompt King Xerxes to summon Esther to his palace. Because if king, the king summons Esther, then she's free and clear, she's fine. He summons her in his presence and she can ask whatever she wants. But if he doesn't summon her, then she has to take her life in her own hands and risk her life by going there herself, unasked. So you know that the prayer, you know that the prayer was, Lord, make the king, just come on, put it on his heart. That he wants Queen Esther, just whatever you need to do, have him summons her. But on the third day, there's no summons. I was really moved by this because so oftentimes I'm, I'm waiting for God to open a door before I'm even willing to knock on it. And we see here first this morning that God opened a door for Esther, yes, but not before she went knocking on it. See, Esther could have sent another messenger back to Mordecai and said, here's the deal, we all prayed, we fasted, we had sackcloth and ashes and uh, no door opened, no summons from the king. Sorry, I was waiting for the open door, just didn't get it. But what does it say? She got dressed. She stood up and she went before the king and she faced him. You know, Esther didn't wait for an angel to appear or this vision to drop out of the sky or this prophetic word or this magical thing to happen. She knew about God's will for the Jews. She knew his love for the Jews and she was willing to knock on that door by getting dressed, by standing up, and by going before the king. These are the simplest acts, and the Lord just really ministered to me because there's just nothing glamorous, there's nothing supernatural, there's nothing superhuman about this act of bravery for Esther. She just put her clothes on. Yes, it, it took an incredible amount of courage, but the actual details of it were so simple. And I remember about 10 years ago, in fact, I think it was 10 years ago this year that I was first invited to go to the Amazon jungle with Justice and Mercy International. And it, I really wanted to go because I knew God's mission for us to go and for us to give the gospel and for us to take care of the, the least of these. The problem was is it was just not a good time in my life. I was, I was really struggling with some depression. I was struggling with some anxiety. It was just a very, very difficult time. Relationships, finances, everything was unsettled. And I remember I was in the book of Judges one morning, and that may tip you off to, you know, you know you're depressed when you're doing your morning quiet time in Judges. And so I should have been in maybe a different book at that time. But it's in the book of Judges in chapter 6, 14, and it's where the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and says, I want you to save the Midianites or save the Jews out of the hands of the Midianites, save Israel out of the hands of the Midianites. And he goes, oh, I can't do that. You don't understand him. He gives all these reasons. And then the angel of the Lord says, Gideon, go in the strength that you have. Just whatever strength you have, whatever you can muster up, just go in that. Just go in whatever little tiny bit you have. If you will just go in that, then I will be faithful to do everything else. 
And I remember that was it for me. That settled it. I thought, okay, I'm going to go. I mean, you know, anacondas and, and monkeys and tarantulas, that doesn't sound great to me right now, but I'm going to go in the strength that I have. And here Esther, she goes in the strength that she has. She puts her clothes on. She stands up and she faces the king. Now, it does say that she found favor in the eyes of the king, and this is really important. Uh, it doesn't say that Esther found favor in God's eyes here. It says that she found favor in the king's eyes. But we know from the book of Proverbs that the Lord holds the king's heart and the ways of the king in his hands and directs it as he wishes. So even though God's name is not mentioned here, we absolutely can see that God's hand of favor is on Esther here by virtue of the fact that he has caused the king to be favorable to her. And so he extends that scepter. And this is the pinnacle moment. This is the moment we've all been waiting for because, oh my goodness, she went knocking on that door. She took her life in her own hands and the door opened. He didn't send her to be executed. He extended the golden scepter. And he says, what is it? Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom, all of it, what do you want? Just tell me your request. And she says, well, I would like you and Haman to come to a banquet at my house. And so immediately the king, he gets Haman and, and they're over at the banquet and they're eating and they're feasting. And when we get near the end of the text that we just read, it says that they were drinking wine. They would have been further down into the meal. So they've been drinking a lot of wine. They're in good spirits. And I want to revisit verses seven and eight. Esther answered, this is my petition and my request, if I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king, and what are we all waiting for right here? May the king spare the Jewish people. There, see, there's this plot. May the king spare the Jewish people, but she doesn't say this. She says, if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king Come back tomorrow for another banquet. Which is not at all what we're expecting. I mean, it's like, hey, king, why don't you come back tomorrow? I haven't seen you in 30 days. And this Haman guy, we're really connecting. This is fantastic. Let's do this whole thing again tomorrow. And I was looking at this and I was so puzzled. Why does she ask them back for a banquet the next day? So we began to research that and... I don't think we can know. I don't, there doesn't give us an answer why she did this, but there are a few different theories. First, in Persian culture, you would take a lot of time with a transaction like this. You would spend time in conversation. That's part of it. Also, we can't uh, rule out that there was some discernment happening here. Perhaps there was wisdom that God's hand was upon her and it just was not the right time. Maybe she got into the conversation and maybe Haman had said something, maybe the king had said something and she thought, you know what? I'm not feeling like this is the right time to make this petition. I think we need to hold off another day. But what really moved me is that there was this one commentator and he said, could it be that right at the moment, right at the moment when she could make any request that she wanted and she was about to talk to the king about sparing the Jews, could it be that in that moment, her courage failed her? And that is certainly not implausible because in chapter four, verse four, when Esther first finds out about the decree to annihilate all the Jews, it says that she was overcome with fear because Esther is human. 
She's brave, but she's human. And she's like you, and she's like me. And we get afraid. And sometimes we're overcome with fear. And could it be that Esther had gone as far as she could go in the strength that she had, and then courage escaped her? What I love about this is that God is going to be faithful regardless and that God is going to use this. And not only is he going to use this, but in fact, everything that is absolutely essential to the story and everything that changes the, the, the total trajectory of this story happens in between banquet number one and banquet number two. And that is fascinating to me. And it is all God's work. It is all God's work, and it all happens between banquet number one and banquet number two. So regardless of the fact as to whether or not Esther got afraid or whether it was her discernment or whether it was custom or whether it was a combination of all three, God was going to make sure that it happened, and he was sovereign over it. And could it be that he could even use our fears, that he could even use that? So I want to pick up. We're going to continue reading verse 9. That day, Haman left full of joy or gladness and in good spirits. And, but when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence, Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. Yet Haman controlled himself and went home and he sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh to join him. And then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over the other officials and the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. I'm invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate all the time. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends told him, have them build a gallows 70 feet tall, ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it, then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. The advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. I think what really moved me in this particular section is that verse 9 where it says that Haman left the king's gates and he was glad and he was in good spirits. He had been, you know, drinking wine, which they do a whole lot of in this book. And he was in good spirits and he was happy and he had been chosen to be at the banquet and he was the only one chosen. But the second that he walks out and Mordecai does not bow down to him, it says that he was filled with rage. So he goes from being incredibly glad and in great spirits to filled with rage. That is a huge swing in a very short amount of time. And it was convicting for me because I thought, and yes, Haman is a very extreme example, very unstable character, but I did have to ask myself, are, do my emotions go up and down radically based on my circumstances? It is no fun to be in relationship with people like that. You know, there are some people that you might describe or they might describe themselves like, yeah, well, part of my personality is that I'm moody. It's just part of my personality. You know, as a Christ follower, moodiness does not get to be part of your personality. It, it's, it's not how that works. We, Paul says in Philippians that he has learned how to be content in all things. And Haman is, is not content here. He is only content when every single thing is firing on all cylinders for his glory, for his fame, for his wealth, for his comfort, for his notoriety. And it was such the antithesis of how we see in the New Testament how we are called to live as believers. 
that are, are we up when everything is working well, when people are respecting us, when people are treating us the way that we want to be treated, when, when there's money in the bank account or when our job is going well or when our kids are behaving themselves? Are we only happy in those circumstances? And when things get messed up, we dive down. Is it, is it a constant roller coaster? Are we, are we roller coasters to be around? That is not how Jesus Christ would have us to be. And so we see Haman just just up and down, and he goes back, and in fact, he, he actually, he's so upset that Mordecai won't bow down to him that he gathers all of the people that are his friends and his family and, and, and essentially just throws a party to tell everybody how great he is. And that is what he does. And he tells them how awesome it was to be at the queen's house and how she was the only one, he was the only person that got invited. And I, I guarantee you, I know this for an absolute fact that if Haman had been living in the year 2018 and he got invited to the queen's palace, he absolutely would have tweeted about that many, many times. And then after getting to the dinner, I guarantee he would have Instagrammed every second of that thing to let everybody know how chosen he was, how great he was, and yet he's a miserable, miserable, angry, bitter man. And then he also has friends who are giving him terrible advice. His wife, the friends are saying, hey, build these gallows, why don't you just go kill Mordecai? And it will end up being his own Demise. Okay, let's continue reading. Chapter 6, verse 1. That night sleep escaped the king, so he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. And they found the written report of how Mordecai had informed on Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance when they planned to assassinate King Xerxes. The king inquired what honor and special recognition have been given to Mordecai for this act. The king's personal attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. And the king asked, well, who is in the court? Now Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. The king's attendants answered him, Haman is there standing in the court. Have him enter, the king ordered. Haman entered and the king asked him what should be done for the man the king wants to honor. And Haman thought to himself, well, who is it that the king would want to honor more than me? Haman told the king, for the man the king wants to honor, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn and a horse the king himself has ridden, which is a royal crown on its head. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most no noble officials and have them clothe the man the king wants to honor. Parade him on the horse through the city square and proclaim before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. And the king told Haman, hurry and do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not leave out anything that you have suggested. I just wish I had a videotape of this. I just would have loved to have seen this, that he's marching in right there. He can't even wait hardly till dawn to tell the king, I've got these gallows, you're going to hang Mordecai on it. And then the king says, oh, you know, what should we do for this, for, for, for this great man? And, and he's thinking, of course, that great man is me. And, and then what I absolutely love is when he reveals that it's Mordecai and at the end just there, he says, and by the way, the king says, to Haman, by the way, don't leave out anything you've suggested. I mean, all of those great ideas that you just came up with, don't miss a beat. I mean, you do it all, do the whole thing. Just you carry out your whole plan. What fascinates me about this story and what testifies to the providence and the sovereignty of God is that everything like I just said earlier, that happens in between banquet number one and banquet number two really has nothing to do with the banquet. It really doesn't have 
anything to do with whatever Esther's schemes were, even though they were good plans. It's all God. God is entering the scene. First of all, Haman walks out, he gets mad, and that Mordecai's not bowing down, so he builds the gallows. Then that night, it's the most mundane thing. It's the simplest thing in the world. The king can't sleep. And I don't even know how that's possible because he has been drinking the entire book. So I don't know how he's not just out, but he is up and he cannot sleep. The actual rendering is actually that sleep fled him. You just see God's hand just saying, I'm taking away sleep from you tonight. And so he's thinking, okay, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? I can't sleep. He goes, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll have the attendant come in and he'll just read me the daily recordings because that surely will put me to sleep. And so the attendant comes in and he begins to just scroll through all the things that had happened recently in the kingdom. And he finds out that this man named Mordecai, this Jewish man named Mordecai, actually helped him escape an assassination. We heard about it a couple weeks ago. And the king didn't even know that. He didn't even know that Mordecai had done this on his behalf. And so then he thinks, oh my goodness, I didn't even know this. Well, now I've got to make some fantastic plan for this guy. I've got to honor him in some ways. And he thinks, okay, who should I ask? Who should I ask? Like, what would be a good thing that I could do? And he just turns and he's like, who's in the court right now? Well, it's Haman walking into the court because he has this plan with these gallows. So Haman just happens to be walking into the court at just the right time. The king just happens to not be able to sleep. The daily recordings just happen to include what Mordecai has done. This, what are the possibilities of all of this happening? in between banquet number one and banquet number two, and we don't even know why there's a banquet number two. What are, what are the chances? There's no chance of this happening apart from God's hand, from God's providential hand, arranging all of these pieces and putting it all together in the way that he sees fit. Let's finish the text. Verse 11, so Haman took the garment and the horse he clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, crying out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried off for home, mournful and with his head covered. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened, and his advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. And while they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. Here, let me share a few personal truths that the Lord has convicted me with and has shown me with as I've been studying this text. First of all, when Esther says, if I perish, I perish, I would like to think that that is who I would be. I would like to think that if really push came to shove and I was in her situation, that I would have responded to Mordecai and said, if I perish, I perish. But recently I was in a situation and the Lord wanted me to invite someone to church and she was somebody that was clearly not a Christ follower and it really was just the Lord was putting me on a heart, like just extend an invitation, extend an invitation. And I thought, no, but Lord, it could be embarrassing. I mean, it could be embarrassing. And the Holy Spirit just so gently spoke to my heart and said, how will you ever be able to say, if I perish, I perish, if you're not willing to first say, if I'm embarrassed, I'm embarrassed for the sake of the gospel. See, most of us will never be in the situation, if I perish, I perish, or we haven't been in that situation, I should say. So it's easier for us to say, yeah, sure, but what if God is asking us 
to tithe or to give money and it's gonna really stretch us, are we willing to say, well, if I lose money, I lose money? Um, for the sake of the gospel, maybe he's calling us to go on a mission trip or to go someplace locally that's just gonna be uncomfortable. And the Lord's saying, are you willing to say, if I'm uncomfortable, I'm uncomfortable? Or if when you share your faith, if it's awkward, it's awkward. That's what's been convicting me. Because if we can't say those things, I don't think we're ever gonna be able to say, if I perish, I perish. What really freed me up in this text is that Esther knew enough about God's general will to make a specific plan. What do I mean about that? Well, you know what? There was no talking donkey that came to Esther. There was no angel. There was no prophetic word. She knew about, enough about God's general will to the Jewish people to make a detailed plan. I think God would have blessed any plan that Esther made just so long as she stepped out on faith. One banquet, two banquets, I don't think it would have mattered if she had gone bowling with the king and Haman. He would have blessed that because she was stepping out on obedience and she made a plan. Number one today, just three simple points that I hope will be meaningful. Number one, make a plan. This is in your worship guide. Make a plan that seeks to accomplish God's revealed will in scripture. I know some of us are sitting back and we're like, well, you know, the Lord hasn't really opened a door and I'm not really sure how to make a specific plan because I don't really know what the will of God is. You know, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says that in the Old Testament times, the Lord spoke at many different times and in many different ways. But now he has spoken through his son, Jesus Christ. And if we wanna know the will of God, all we have to do is to search the scriptures and to see what Jesus says and what he has told us to do. And we know, what is it? It's to lead people to Jesus Christ. It's to disciple people behind us. It's to raise up the younger generation who are coming behind us. Um, it's to give to the poor. It's to take care of the least of these. It's to not turn our back on our family members. It's to live for eternity and not in light of the things that are temporal. We know the will of God. It is right here. He has spoken through his son, Jesus Christ, and he has spoken through his word. We know the word of God. So what is your plan to execute it? What plan have you made? Because the reality is we make plans for the things that we care about and the things we believe in. We make plans for vacation, we make plans for our retirement, we make plans for our kids' education, we make plans to be with our friends, we make plans to binge watch Netflix on the weekends. We make plans for the things we care about and the things we believe, but yet many of us so often, we have not made any plan to carry out God's revealed will for our lives. I was with Richard Stearns last week, the president of World Vision, he left a huge career huge career to take over World Vision 20 years ago. And he made this statement, if we are not personally engaged in God's great mission in the world, then we have missed the very thing he created us to do. If we're not personally engaged in God's great mission in the world, we've missed the very thing he's created us to do. But how can we carry out the mission of what he's created us to do if we've made no plan to do it? Make a plan that seeks to accomplish God's will in scripture. Number two, execute the plan 
in community, along with prayer, fasting, and accountability. Yes, Esther had to go step out before the king by herself, but not without Mordecai and all the Jews praying on her behalf. She had a whole kingdom of Jews praying for her, fasting for her, calling out on the name of the Lord for her. She was in community. Mordecai and Esther had all of these exchanges going back and forth. They were hashing out the plan. What about this? What about that? Well, I think you should do this. Okay, I'm going to do this. She had accountability. And we cannot miss here, we cannot miss that God moved in such profound ways because they had prayed and because they had fasted. How serious are you? How serious am I about executing the will of God? Because there are some here today, you have made a plan, you know what you're supposed to carry out, but you've gotten stalled in the execution of it. And what will help the execution is being in community. Have you made a plan this summer to be in the word of God with other believers? What about even in the fall? Can you commit already in the fall that you're gonna join a community group? Or you're gonna start saving for a mission trip? Or you're gonna reach out to your coworker? Do it within the context of community. Because I do believe this from all of scripture we see that you were not meant to carry out God's will for your life alone. None of us were. We have to execute the plan within the context of community, accountability, fasting, and prayer. And that is what Esther did. And this is my final word for this morning. Number three, trust God and his sovereignty with the results of the plan. See, Esther had no idea how this was gonna work out. Because when you say something like, if I perish, I perish, that's not a real guaranteeing, comforting statement, right? That's like not, I know for sure what's gonna happen. It's, I might die, might not, but I trust God. Mordecai, when he said, could it be, could it be, Esther? Could it be that you have come to royal position for such a time as this? Who knows, my translation says, who knows? I don't know how this is gonna work out. I don't know how this is gonna happen, but I trust God. And I know that there are some here today that you have not only made a plan to carry out God's will for your life, but you're actually in the process of executing that plan. But maybe the plan hasn't gone the way that you thought. Maybe it hasn't worked out the way that you thought it would. And you're in the middle of that and the Lord is asking you, would you trust me with the details? Would you trust me with the overarching plan? Would you trust my sovereignty? If this book is about one thing, if it's about anything, it is about God's sovereignty in our life, his goodness, his hand, his providence, the fact that he is always on the throne. Last weekend, I was in... New Hampshire, and I was speaking at a church there, and there was a 74-year-old woman named Linda who was to be my runner to get me back and forth to the church. And she shows up at my hotel room, I get in the car with her, and we're driving to the church. And in the course of conversation, I find out that she has lost a child, four children, and lost a child. And she said, yes, I lost Scotty when he was 16 in a car accident. She said, boy, it's been 29 years and I could cry about it right now. And I said, Linda, how? How did you, how did you get up in the morning? How did you carry on? How have, for the last 29 years, how have you been faithful? 
How are you this joyful? How are you this much fun? She was a ball. She braked a lot, but she was a ball. And she said, you know, Kelly, first of all, I was in community in the church. Jesus Christ sustained us. He provided for us. He comforted us. And she said, and and I had the fellowship of, of Jesus, the fellowship of his sufferings. I had that to sustain me, but I also had the fellowship of the saints. She goes, oh, there's deep fellowship in the community of believers. But then she said something that I will never forget, but she said, you know what? The one thing, the one thing that really carried me, God's sovereignty, he's over it. He had it. it. It was grievous to us, but God is in control and he is good and I trust him. And then she said this quote by Charles Spurgeon. When you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you can lay your head. Losing a son certainly was not part of the plan that Linda had, but she could rest her head on the sovereignty of God knowing that he is good and he is in control and he's in charge. Some of you this morning, just leave you with this. Some of you, you know the revealed will of God You know the things he cares about. You know what his mission is. You know what your call is. But you've never made a plan to begin to execute it. Do something. Make some sort of a plan. Whether it's getting involved in a group, connecting with someone here, make some plan. Some of you here today, you have the plan, but you're trying to execute it by yourself. You've forgotten prayer you've forgotten fasting because fasting, that means you're serious, right? If we're gonna go without food, we're serious. Um, You've forgotten accountability, you've forgotten community. And the Lord's saying, execute it in the context of the body of Christ. And some of you, you've made the plan, you're executing the plan, but the plan just isn't going the way you thought. It's not unfolding the way you'd hoped. Today, can you trust God in his sovereignty? Can you trust that God has it and that he has you and that he is faithful and that he is in control? Lord Jesus, I thank you for the opportunity to open your word this morning. I thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to share with my brothers and sisters in Christ what you have been speaking to me and what you have been showing me. God, let's not miss it. We don't wanna miss it because we didn't make a plan, because we didn't execute the plan, because we didn't trust your goodness and your sovereignty. And Lord, where we do fail, where courage does flee us, you carry us the rest of the way. In the name of Jesus Christ.